This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Marcus Capone. Now, for those of you who've listened to multiple episodes, you have probably heard at least one Navy SEAL talking about the incredible success they had with Ibogaine for their TBIs and PTSD. Well, the man behind the nonprofit vets that sent many of these sailors through this program is Marcus Capone. So in this incredible conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the military, ascending to the tier one level, his own mental health struggle, finding psychedelics, the healing power of Ibogaine, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Marcus Capone. Enjoy. All right. Well, Marcus, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. And I also want to say thank you to Ryan Parrott for connecting us. And uh, yeah, so welcome to the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you if you're out there. Um, and James, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and humbled and always grateful for having good friends. And, and um, yeah, this is going to be great. So thank you. No, thank you. And I will get into why, but obviously many of the SEALs I've had on the show you and you know the the organization that you've created with amber has helped so many lives um so i'm really really excited to kind of go down that path with you as not only your personal experience but again how after leaving a life of service you found another way to continue that service i think it's important so where on planet earth roughly are we finding you today so today i am in the lovely um city of coronado california so this little peninsula um that sticks uh out i guess off of uh off of the city of san diego and there's a bridge you fly into fly into the international airport and within i don't know 13 minutes you're in coronado and half the base is naval air station uh, and the other half is uh is a beautiful city and it's uh it's pretty wonderful here and what a lot of people don't know is that um, this is where steel training buds uh takes place right literally five minutes from my house. And, um, yeah, I don't think most of the, most of the world knows that, um, it's public knowledge, but, uh, it's pretty wild that, uh, individuals stay at the hotel del Coronado and they see these, uh, freakishly looking individuals that are, you know, running down the beach with boats on their heads or doing a swim out in the ocean. So, um, it's pretty cool. And we just, I mean, we just love it here. It's got, it's, uh, you know, beach is close. Uh, the neighborhood's great. Um, you can, you know, kind of hop in a golf cart and go anywhere or, or take a walk and, and be at Starbucks in five minutes. So um, what's not to love, except for some some steep taxes here in the state. Other than that, <laughs> that. <laughs> they call it the sunshine tax. Um, at least that's what I tell myself after leaving Texas and coming back out here. 
Yeah, they're pretty uh, pretty good in Florida. We don't have quite as many taxes, and we still have the sunshine. But I think the humidity takes away from it. So we pay tax and humidity, I think. That's right. And uh, you know, a few few hours from the mountains and a beautiful Pacific Ocean, and it's all good. I can't complain. I drove to um, Anaheim because that's where I used to work, Anaheim Fire, um, from San Diego a few years ago now on, on a visit. And when I was going up PCH, there was some sort of operation going on. It was amazing. So I got, I pulled over and stood there and there were, you know, gunships and just, I mean, every sort of craft, aquatic and, and aviation was, was taking part in some obviously massive multi-company organization, but it was absolutely incredible to watch. Yeah, that's pretty cool. James, where, where was that exactly? Um, <clears throat> I want to say, if I'm not totally screwing it up, probably about 30 minutes north of San Diego, if I've got that right. So, and this would have been several years ago now, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a known place because, I mean, there was a kind of pullover spot and a whole bunch of other people were watching too, but yeah, pretty phenomenal. And not often you get to go to the beach and watch a gigantic military opera- operation practicing right in front of you. Yeah, that's right. I'm wondering if it is up near Camp Pendleton, uh, Marine Corps base that's, I don't know, I'd say probably 45 minutes north of San Diego. And then you have to drive probably about 20 minutes on the PCH to get past it. And then you're in San Clemente. And there's a lot of activity that happens there. They have, um, I forgot the name of the, the craft, but the, the salt crafts there. And they do a bunch of, um, you know, rotary, rotary wing um, work, you know, both right across the PCH and then hop back over to the main base at Camp Pendleton. And so it's pretty cool. Every time you drive by there, you see something fun going on. I think it was. Now you say that, I'm thinking of Coronado, but yeah, it was Pendleton probably that I was closer to. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well then, so before we even get to your timeline then, you know, the West Coast Seals, obviously Coronado is kind of the base for them. Was it something that you just never moved away or have you kind of moved away and then moved back as a base again now? Yeah, we, um, I, I was medically retired actually in 2013 and I, we moved up to LA, we moved up to Calabasas for a year. Uh, I got a really, really good position, uh, at, uh, Morgan Stanley private bank. And I uh, thought that I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Um, that lasted about a year, but, um, it was a great step off into the private sector and uh, after about a year, uh, I found my way at a private equity firm at a New York City uh, Fortress Investment Group. And I started to commute from LAX to the East Coast. And I only did that for a few months. And that was just starting to get really challenging. And so long story short, um, Amber, my wife's uh, dad, had taken the offensive coordinator position at University of Texas football. And so we decided to kind of move halfway. Um, and so we moved to a, a suburb of Dallas called South Lake and it was, it was great. Uh, it was good for the seven years that we lived there. And as soon as our kids graduated, our daughter wanted to go to school in California and she's a freshman at San Diego state and uh, we decided to move back. And so, you know, with kids out the door and my you know mother in Florida and, and my wife's family in the Midwest, um, you know, we didn't know really where to go. So we always said, when we get back to California, we'll probably live anywhere, somewhere between Coronado and Newport Beach. Um, we just kind of love a lot of the, you know, we love most of the beach towns. And so right now we're in Coronado, but we're actively looking. And I think within a month, 
if we got back on here, I, I would tell you we, we will either still be living in Coronado or somewhere up the coast, either in North County, San Diego, or potentially in Orange County. Yeah, it's gorgeous there. When I worked for Anaheim, I first started in Burbank, which was typically the moving to LA story. I was under the Burbank airport living in an absolute rat hole. But as I progressed and got some money under me, we end up at Huntington Beach. Now, not on the beach, kind of more towards Westminster, but uh, yeah, 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 I mean, gorgeous down there. It really is. I love Huntington. I, I do. It's like kind of more my style. I grew up in an East Coast beach town in Long Beach, and I could definitely live in Huntington. Um, prices there actually are a lot better than like, if you're looking at Newport or Laguna or some other places, but, um, you know, I just, I, I think Huntington beach is great. And, um, so we'll see, we'll see where we end up, but for me to be close to the water is important. You know, if I can be on a board, um, or with fins on, you know, or with a dive mask, I'm, I'm good to go. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned Long Beach and you mentioned football. So I know those kind of factor into your earlier story. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I was born. I was actually born in Queens. Both my parents are from Flushing and Bayside. My dad went to Holy Cross High School um, in Flushing, old boys Catholic high school from 60 to 64. And my mom went to Bayside High School. Uh, They didn't know each other. They grew up three miles, like, I don't know, less than three miles apart, but never didn't really know each other until they're in their, I guess, late twenties. Um, but yeah, so my, my dad was a, you know, a, an altar boy at four years old, you know, Catholic school, like strong Catholic school upbringing. And my mom comes from a Jewish family, Kaplan's, um, Ukrainian, Ukrainian Jews. And, um, yeah, they, they kind of raised me with no religion, just kind of kind of just threw me out there, but I, I grew up very, um, very busy. Like I never felt like I was ever bored. And I, you know, I always, I played a sport, uh, from the day I could remember I was on skis at three years old. Uh, and I actually have some memories of that at Keystone in Colorado where I learned how to ski. And I think I was thrown in the pool at right when I turned four. And so, you know, that's all I knew. And then, you know, gradually grew into everything, wrestling, um, baseball, football, basketball. Um, even though I grew up on Long Island, I, I had a short stint in lacrosse, but lacrosse and baseball overlapped. Um, so, yeah, it was just uh, really just a very busy life in sports. And my dad was, you know, pretty, I think, pretty tough on me um, when it came to athletics um, and I grew up, uh, as I mentioned in a, in an East coast beach town. So we had a great swim team. Um, I couldn't wait to be a lifeguard when I turned 16 and, and that was like the dream job. You got paid a ton of money to, you know, sit on the beach all day, work out, run, do pull-ups and push-ups and swim and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome, but you know, my parents didn't know this at the time, but I was supposed to be born in Southern California. <laughs> um, this is why we're here now. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I went, so I, I didn't go to public high school from Long Beach. I actually traveled an hour each day to Holy Cross in Flushing. I kind of fired, uh, followed my, my father's footsteps there. Uh, they had great, uh, sports programs and, um, I had played pop Warner football, with uh, one of the individuals whose dad was the head coach at Holy Cross at the time. And, and so I commuted uh, every day for four years. I took the train 
uh, 20 minutes to Valley Stream and the head coach at the time, uh, Coach Pugh, Tom Pugh, would pick me up and he drove me the rest of the way in. So it was a little, little longer than an hour each, at least going in and then with traffic, you know, probably longer than that. And so I did that for four years and then uh, um, I had some injuries my junior and senior year. And although I was a good athlete, I didn't know what I was going to do at the time. So I got recruited to play at Nassau Community College, which um, I, I think still today it's one of the top uh, junior colleges to play football in the country. Um, and I wound up getting a scholarship to Southern Illinois University out of there as a quarterback. Um, and I joke with people. I said, I, I went to Southern Illinois and I said 20 other guys on the team went to Michigan and Ohio State and, and Syracuse and Georgia Tech and all these like, you know, big, uh, big football schools, um, maybe not Georgia Tech, but, but anyway, um, yeah, so it was good. And, and I, uh, that's where I met Amber. So I met Amber, she was going into her senior year of college and I was actually, um, well, I was dating the coach's daughter. So her dad was the head coach at the time at Southern Illinois university. And he recruited me, uh, from New York to play. Uh, but I didn't meet her until after he left. He went to coach with Gary Barnett at Northwestern a few years after they they had their run. Um, and that's when I started dating the coach's daughter. So <laughs> we can go into that for a long time. But uh, yeah, I mean, college was great. Um, I, I loved every minute of it, maybe too much. Um, and when I graduated, I, I a lot of stuff happened when I graduated. So it was uh, graduation. Um, Amber was pregnant. Uh, we got married. We had our son. I enlisted in the Navy and the rest is history. <laughs> That's so. a hell, hell of a journey. I want to go back all the way back a couple of generations for a second. You said about Ukrainian on your mother's side. Um, do you have any relatives? And then as, as, do you have any perspective either family-wise or maybe even from, from deeper into your career on that whole crisis that we're going through at the moment or they're going through? We're not going through it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I just have to say, I don't know. You know, I, I grew up in like that household. I call it like the typical Long Island household. Maybe it wasn't so typical, but, you know, religion wasn't like a big deal in the household there wasn't a whole lot of patriotism. Um, you know, I heard a lot about music and Woodstock and both my parents were hippies, um, at one point in their life. Um, uh, maybe that's how I decided to start a psychedelic nonprofit. I don't know. But, um, anyway, but yeah, I was like, I was just different than both of them. Matter of fact, when I, when I had that first call with them in college, told them I was going in the Navy to be a SEAL, they said, they just looked at each other and they were just like, what the fuck is wrong with him? Um, <laughs> I thought it was the greatest thing ever, of course. Um, and I'm sure they're, they're, they're fine now. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm off track, James, where are we at? No, it's okay. So, um, yeah, I was going to ask you as far as, you know, the Ukrainian perspective. Yeah, the Ukrainian, so go back to the Ukraine. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, so my mother's side of the family, I don't know how many generations had come over from the Ukraine. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming right after world war two, um, but I don't know very, you know, I don't know specifics and we weren't very close to either both sides of the family. Um, I don't know why, but it was, we were, my, my, my family consisted of myself, my mother, my father, and we had a ton of animals, always had dogs and cats, but that was it. We didn't really see, 
a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles. And we did time to time and they were, they're all amazing. But uh, I just thought it was, you know, when I met Amber, who was the complete opposite, came from this family in the Midwest that was just massive. And there was always like all the families got together on Sundays. And so I don't know, maybe it had to do with, I think my, my dad was a wise guy back in the day, um, you know, banged around with some of the Italian, you know, Italian families. And I think when I was born, they wanted to get away from all that. And so moved out to the Island to have me and kind of raise me in, in a, you know, in a neighborhood away from uh, some of the, uh, some of the antics that were, that were going on in Queens and in the five boroughs at the time. So, um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I, I wish I knew, I know, you know, we're doing a lot to, to figure out how we can help, help the Ukrainians, um, you know, figure out the mess that they're currently in. So um, we're trying to do some work on the nonprofit side, at least on the mental health side, trying to help them with resources and figure out some game plans. Um, we're actually working with pretty high up uh, government officials um, from the ministry there. And uh, we'll see what happens in the near future, but we're actually uh, helping them come up with some options and some game plan. And, and it's going to, it's going to be a long it's, it's going to be a long, um, it's a long game. Uh, the individuals that we've spoken to think that actually this war is going to go on for years. So it's not going to end anytime soon because our question was, Hey, you know, when do you want to get started? You know, would you want to implement these, these treatments, uh, in the near term, or do you want to wait until the war's over? And their response right from the, the mouth of uh, one of the individuals in the Ukraine said, Marcus, this war is going to go on for a long time. And so we just need to get started. Um, in terms of training therapists and unregulating some of the medicines there. And so, and we brought in, you know, obviously some other experts to help with that, but you know, they're, they're going to be there for a while. That's uh, that's so sad to hear, but I mean, you know, look at Afghanistan, that was 20 years. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Nothing happens, you know, too quickly. And, and um, you, the Ukrainians are a tough, tough, tough bunch and they're not going anywhere. You know, and now, of course, you and NATO, everyone's stepping in. Um, you know, Russia's got a, they have a much tougher battle than they originally expected. So, yeah. Well, thank you for that perspective. Well, speaking of the military then, so you're playing football simultaneously, dating the, the coach's daughter, you know, timeline forgiving, of course. Right. Talk to me about your career aspirations when you were playing. Were you hoping to, to go pro? And if not, what caused that shift into the Navy? Yeah. So I had the juvenile mindset that I thought I was going to go play uh, NFL football for 30 years. Um, <laughs> you know, my dad wanted me to uh, really play baseball, uh, play major league baseball. And uh, he just said, you know, so much easier on your body and this and that. And I don't know, I wasn't, I, I really wasn't listening to, it. I loved football. I loved like that whole, just like team aspect and, and uh, the, the, just everything that, that comes with football and you kind of lean on one another and you can't be an individual. And, and so, yeah, I thought I would play ball forever, but um, that of course didn't happen. And uh, I really, you know, I really didn't think about, time in the military until it was my junior. I think it was my start of my senior year, end of my junior year. We were just chatting about this today, actually with on another call. Um, I saw a special on discovery and I don't know if it was, I think it was class. I think it was class 208. Um, it was actually Andy Stump's class. 
uh, ironically, and I, I did Andy's podcast a few months back. Um, you know, we didn't talk about that at all there, which we should have, but that it was his class. And I just remember thinking like, this is awesome. And Amber, Amber actually has better recollection of it. She said, she said, you were really intrigued in all the water evolution. So like all the, um, uh, drown proofing and not tying and stuff that you're, you know, you're bouncing up and down on the deck of the pool. And I just looked at that stuff and I was like, that shit's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, anything in the water, like, let's go. Um, I'm down. And, um, that was it. And it never like nothing matriculated from that though. It just, you know, life went on. And then, you know, I would, I didn't ever talk about this like years ago, of course, especially in my time in the teams. Cause I didn't want to get like, roped up and taped and, and beaten. But, um, one night my roommate and I, my roommate went on to have a stellar career. He was a four, four year starter at strong safety. And then he went on to fly F 18s and, 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 uh, went to top gun and everything else, uh, in the Marine Corps. And we were watching, uh, what came on that night was GI Jane and we're sitting there. And of course, when you're a, 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 a college student who really doesn't know anything about life um, sees something that come on TV. You just assume like, this is it, this must be it. And so all they talked about there were, you know, Navy SEALs. And then I think they called it some, some unit CRT, whatever it was that I didn't know. Of course, I thought it was all real. Um, they just talked about this, 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 this mythical unit that was like the best of the best uh, soldiers and, special operations guys. And, um, that just intrigued me. And like, when you watch the training, right, like, like people are suffering and people are quitting and they talk about the, um, the rate that only, you know, 25% make it. And like, just all of that was just more fuel to go, Oh man, like this stuff is, this is hard. This is tough. And even though it was my like Hollywood, um, vision of really what the SEAL teams were like, it completely intrigued me. And then of course that, that, and then that really started. So couple the, the discovery channel show, um, and then GI Jane, which I freaking still laugh at. Of course, none of that shit's real, but, um, but, um, and then I started reading like every book, uh, that I could get my hands on. I read, gosh, I probably read over 30 books. Most of them written from Vietnam era frogs and, um, it was just great. Every, each book I read, I got more and more intrigued from wanting to do exactly what those guys were doing. And the more they talked about how difficult it was to get through buds, like the more I wanted to go. And, you know, the more they talked about operations in Vietnam, you know, going after like high value targets, um, the more I wanted to do that. And so it just, it just became an obsession. Um, you know, an addiction, a focus, uh, whatever you want to call it. And, um, yeah, I guess the rest is history, but we're going to talk about all that history in between. So absolutely. Well, just before we progress into, you know, adulthood, one thing that really was kind of made very visible to me about probably two years into the podcast, about four years ago now, when I'd never thought about it prior, when we talk about mental health in, you know, fire, police, military, a lot of times the the binoculars shift to, oh, it's what you see, it's what you do. Um, but actually, when you take a step back, 
you got to remember that we've had 20, 25 years prior to that to be a human being on this earth. When you look back now at your childhood, were there any elements that you consider like childhood trauma? And then also I've heard you talk about this as also the TBI element too, the head trauma element. Yeah. Great question, James. And before I keep going, you were a lifeguard, weren't you? I was, yeah. Yeah, never on the ocean though. So I I did the the open water and I did pools and um, water parks and stuff. Cool. Very cool. All right. Best job ever, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I, you know, yeah, I I think I had some childhood traumas. Again, what I thought was normal as a kid, um, you know, your dad backhands you or, um, you know, I saw, I saw some pretty, you know, I saw stuff that only until recently did it really, uh, I did, I remember or think about it because I never really thought about it, but I definitely, um, growing up, you know, at a very young age, I'm talking about like four years old, I can remember my dad putting his hands on me, you know, and it wasn't, you know, looking back, that wasn't cool at all because like, what was I, I was about this big at that time. Um, so he had a really, really bad Irish and Italian temper. Um, and sounds like his grandfather's was worse. And I heard his grandfather's was even worse. So generational shit that was happening, you know, happened. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't count the number of times that, you know, he, he put his hands on me, you know, whether he open, open hand, closed fist, uh, belt buckle, um, you know, broke my, broke bones in my wrists. Um, you know, I watched him do things to my mom that were just not, you know, just a kid shouldn't see. And so, you know, and, and aside from the fact of him, you know, just driving me and driving me and driving me in sports, um, you know, so maybe all that put together is, is a reason why one, I couldn't wait to get far away, uh, to school. Um, I had offers to go play ball in the, in the East coast, but I, I just wanted to get away. And, um, so maybe that had something to do with it. And maybe that's, you know, part of the reason what pushed me into special operations. I don't know. Um, so that's, you know, that's the psychological piece, if you want to call it, maybe some of the, some of the stuff for growing up and then, um, and I'm being, I'm being pretty, um, I'm being pretty high level here, you know, like there's, there's, <laughs> we can go into a lot deeper stories, but I don't, I don't know if, if it's important. Yeah. I mean, um, feel, feel free, the door's open. So you go wherever you'd like to. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, thank you for that. Um, but yeah, then, you know, on the, the TBI side, I, you know, I still struggle with it, even though, you know, I, I have, you know, I have, um, you know, brain scans that show, I obviously have, uh, some stuff going on in there that that's probably affecting or, or has affected me in the past. But, um, I think I started playing tackle football at seven. Um, I think, I'm going to say, I think Archie Manning wouldn't let his kids play tackle football until they were in high school. So all the sports that they played and as, as good as they got, um, he wouldn't let them, he didn't let them like get touched until they were, let's say 14, 15 years old. Um, I remember my first hit that I could really remember at seven and the gear in 1983 was probably shit. Um, and I remember at seven playing against this guy, 
um, I think his name was Jarvon Jackson. He was a 10 year old. He looked like Walter Payton and he hit like Ronnie Lott. And I remember trying to stuff the hole. I didn't even know what that meant at seven years old and putting my head down like this and literally getting run over helmet to helmet and being knocked like so hard that I didn't even know which way was up or down um, from this 10 year old monster. Um, so, you know, and then, yeah. And then I had a career, you know, a career, career of, of everything, you know, sports up until my, uh, well, through my senior high school, uh, excuse me, senior college. So I played, you know, I was a football player all the way through and, and, you know, I, I skied and, and did everything else. And so I had definitely a history of, uh, hard head to head com contact, um, uh, pretty, pretty consistently. Um, uh, and then that was through, I guess, 22 years old. And I joined the military 23 and, um, had some really, uh, you know, of course, some, some pretty hard hits, um, both in helmets and out of helmets, um, through my, you know, my 13 year military career. Uh, I was a, I was a breacher. So I did, um, I was around, um, explosive charges uh, pretty often. Um, that's why I feel for some of the, some of the guys I worked with, I remember who had more time in the military as I had. And I remember a close friend that, um, I worked with, we were on a breaching trip and he had, uh, he had like blood and, 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 um, black shit coming out of his, his nose, uh, after a day of, of setting charges off. I remember turning to him and just saying, Hey man, like that just can't be good. You know? And we both looked at each other like, yeah, I, I you know, it feels great right now. <laughs> I love, you know, love that shockwave, like rattling your teeth and your head and your body. Um, I mean, there is nothing like it in the world, you know, but you know, you will pay the price eventually. And so, um, you know, so I had that, you know, the, the, the psychological piece, if you want to call it trauma, probably starting as a child. And then, you know, the, the, uh, the TBI piece, probably starting, I guess, also as a child and really not stopping until, I guess, probably around 2013. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, ironically and unfortunately, um, my headaches now, like literally today are just worse than ever. Um, and I'm, I'm a little worried. Um, they were definitely, you know, my, my, um, my cognitive functioning is like off the charts much better than they've ever been. Um, but I'm getting, I'm getting really weird headaches that I've never had before. And it's kind of frightening me a little bit because, um, I have had headaches throughout my career. Um, I, I mean, I've lived on ibuprofen for so many years. Um, I'm looking at like a new, you know, a new pharmaceutical to take right now that doesn't affect the stomach as much. Cause I'm, I'm feel like I eat those things like candy and I just know they're not good for you. But, um, yeah, just, you know, again, we were talking about it recently. I think I'm going to go get, uh, I'm going to go get some, some more scans because, uh, just for the headaches. So other than that, like everything else is good, really good. Um, but these headaches are just weird. They're happening in weird spots that like they didn't happen before and they come on really strong. And if I don't take care of them immediately, I go into this like horrible, um, migraine, you know, where then I have to take like ibuprofen and like find somebody to give me a Toradol shot and like just anything to like, kill the, kill the pain. And sometimes it's from, 
it's from um, dehydration. Other times it's just from literally like smacking my head, like if I'm surfing or something and like, just like fall off on a wave or, or, you know, sometimes it's just in different ways. I'm, you know, putting my, my, my neck. So these are just things that didn't happen before. And so I'm, you know, I'm a little concerned. I'm just, I'm, I'm not going with that. There's nothing, nothing too bad in there. And I'm just, maybe I'm just aging a little bit. So I had, um, a significant amount of head trauma, not probably as much as you, but I did martial arts when I was younger. Um, spent some time in shootbox in LA, which Vandalay Silver's gym, if you remember yeah. that. So basically fight club, <laughs> getting the shit kicked out of me for a year straight. Did stunts, um, firefighting. We don't really get a lot of head trauma. Ceiling falls on your head once in a while, but nothing too bad. But I've always suffered from migraines and sleep deprivation was a huge one for me. And it's funny when you talk to Kurt Parsley, you start to understand, you know, head trauma and, and sleep deprivation pretty much mimic the same thing physiologically. But when I get them, I mean, they're two days long. I throw up. I have, you know, diarrhea. I mean, it's absolutely fucking brutal and but nothing, nothing touches it. So the only thing that I found aside from transitioning off the fire service and getting sleep is uh, chiropractic, like dressing the muscles in my neck, the get super tight is is you know somewhat of a help but um yeah i feel your pain completely because mine are completely debilitating and i don't know if you know if there's that much head trauma involved or it's more stress you know deprivation all that stuff but if you suffer from migraines i feel your pain because they are yeah. absolutely awful yeah james i'm sorry to hear that too because I, I like i said i i know whatever i go through i i don't wish upon anyone so like when you tell me that i i feel horrible because i know i know what they're like and i know sometimes when you do take medicine, they, they still don't go away. So maybe they, they, they dampen a little bit. Um, but they can be, you know, when you start pulling your hair out, literally like, I mean, you know, it's, it's not, um, so I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I know, I know what that's like. And, you know, I, I always say that I say that I also say the same thing about depression because I think depression is so debilitating and I don't wish that upon anyone because sometimes you just can't, you don't know how, um, or you haven't been what I call cracked open from, from some of the medicine, uh, that we work with, you know, you don't know how to get out of those, those deep ruts. And, uh, I, I don't wish that upon anyone either because they're just, they're not fun places to be. No, absolutely not. And I think sadly, you know, they're, they're the prices they do in business. Um, and we can do business a lot better because now I think we're the same. Are you 48? I'm 45. 45. Okay. I got my math wrong. Then. Yeah, okay. I'm not that old yet. <laughs> so we're almost <laughs> the same age. So yeah, I mean, now if you look at martial arts, for example, they're not kicking the shit out of each other in gyms anymore. All the good gyms. It's less is more. It's, you know, light sparring. If you're going to fight, you fight in the ring. Um, you know, and the same, hopefully with, with my community down the road, I hope we'll fix the shifts so that they get a lot more rest and recovery in between. But Kirk Parsley is one of the reasons why I started this podcast and what he did with, with his community he was working and addressing the sleep deprivation and, you know, addressing I, some of the hormones and stuff. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I went to Kirk many years ago uh, when we first came out to the West coast and became very close with Kirk and Kurt really, uh, you know, he is, um, kind of an anchor in this whole story you know um we can get i don't know, maybe we get into later but you kirk was one of the reasons why i went and did my first uh psychedelic experience um was from him his recommendation and also um he was working in the background with amber for almost a year uh trying to get me to commit but you know it, it takes a while of course so i have nothing but a huge huge place in my heart for kirk and and just as a friend as a brother, as a SEAL brother, and, and of course what he's um, 
he's doing for and what he was doing initially for the community when none of the what he tells me the graybeards didn't want to listen to him and why he how he got out and why he started doing the same thing for the guys because you know he just cares about the guys so much and uh, he he knew and knows what's right and um yeah absolutely all right well let me kind of walk you through your career then so we can get to the other side and start talking about that one thing i think is fascinating with anyone that comes on the show is the the amount the uh, the level of attrition that you have in seal selection i think is is a model of four places a model for fire now obviously we need more more bodies probably than than you guys result in but i think setting that bar high um is something that we need to see in our profession as well so when so many people that you got hired with that went through buds ended up ringing the bell physically and mentally what was it that carried you through and allowed you to to make it through all the way to the end um i was i was too dumb to quit (laughs) (laughs) um no i you know i went there with a i mean i went there with a purpose i was you know i was going to be a seal that was it hey you know whatever they wanted to throw at me uh didn't matter so they could have they could have beat us every day for six months and I just would have stayed there and just figured, Oh, this is, this is just a school I have to get through to, to, to get to the final, you know, final place where you receive that trident and uh, get your platoon. So for me, it was never about like, you know, pass fail or can I do this? Or it was just, okay, what's the evolution. All right, great. Like we got to, we got to do that today. And some, of course you're better than others. Um, so for me, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was weird. It was just the mindset I had going in was that this is just another school or thing I have to do to get to where I'm going. And so whatever they throw at me, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. It's going to be hard, but I'll never complain about, you know, why they're doing it or, or whatever. Um, but you know, people, uh, you know, individuals that go to buds, they, they quit for, you know, a host of reasons. You mentioned two of them. Well, I mean, it is, it's physical and mental really. And the physical piece aside from, you know, the pushups and sit-ups and pull-ups and running and all that fun stuff. Um, the cold water is what gets most people. I think that's what separates. Yes. Yeah, what separates, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the services and a lot of the special forces and different units. And I think, I think it's the water. Um, and I think it's the cold water because nothing is more demoralizing than when you're cold and you have to get out and you stand there and you just feel, uh, you feel like a piece of shit and you're, you're shaking and, and they say, you got to go back in, you know, it's usually when they say you got to go back in. It's not like when you're in, even though people do quit, people quit. Um, the majority of individuals that quit buds are, um, it turns back into psychological. Um, so it's like the morning you wake up in the morning, first off, People ask me what's the hardest part of buds. I tell them uh, waking up in the morning because you wake up and you literally can't fucking move. And, you know, in 30 minutes, you're literally going to be on the grinder, getting your ass beat again and sprinting, you know, 400 yards in and out of the ocean, getting sandy, coming back and doing it in two minutes. And that just the thought of that when you can't move and you're kind of warm under your covers and it's... California, when the sun's not out, a coastal desert environment. So it could be, I don't know, 48, even, you know, 
even mid fifties is cold when you, you know, the water is going to be somewhere in the low sixties, mid sixties, or if you're really unlucky here in the mid fifties, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, um, I never, never really thought about quitting. I had like a moment of weakness. I think Wednesday night of hell week, I remember like breaking down and just going like, what am I doing? Like, it was one of those things where my mind was just started wandering. I probably was hallucinating. Um, but yeah, for me, quitting was never an option. How much did GI Joe prepare you for that process? I mean, excuse me, GI Jane, not GI or or GI Joe either. (laughs) Um, I mean, like probably zero, (laughs) (laughs) right? Um, it was a great, great movie. Uh, I mean, nothing, there's nothing there that is, is even, I mean, I guess there's similar, there, there's like, there's some similarities, but there's, you know, still at the end of the day, I don't care. It's like, it's like stuff that's in theory and then in, in, in practical work. Right. So I don't care how many books you read, like you still can't go out on a range and shoot a, a, a long gun uh, just by, you know, being an expert at reading every manual that there is and on this specific um, you know, weapon system. And so like, you actually have to do, you have to do the work. And so whatever you watch, that's why it still hasn't gotten easier because there's so much information out there. They could watch whatever they want. They could hear all these podcasts about all the cool guys. Um, some of them that have done really cool things and they could hear about every hour and every minute of buds. Um, but like, how is that going to help a person when, you know, there's a war, uh, war fighter that just spent the last 20 years on his like 25th combat deployment, kicking sand in your face. Like, I don't care what you watch or what you read or what you think, you know, um, you're, you're going to get your ass beat and depends on what's going on up here. It's going to keep you going. Yeah. Backdraft didn't prepare me too well for fire Academy either. (laughs) I thought I could be a firefighter after that. Carry this. I wear this gear. You know, if something falls, I move out of the way. The door is working, right? Like, oh shit, there's smoke. And if I open it, backdraft. And so I'm not supposed to do that. I'm sure that's what exactly how they teach it. At it is. And then you just have to suspect the chief is an arsonist. And then you're pretty much going to get through it. <laughs> All right. Well, then I know you have an interesting kind of career as well because you entered pre 9-11 9-11 happened like right when you were going through all this so you know talk to me about that journey and, and when you found yourself finally overseas yeah so th- it was pre 9-11 it's uh there was no war and so when i when i when i got into the teams it was well actually i wasn't in the teams i was in buds um we just thought we were you know we were running on the beach and we're getting strong and we're going to go to our platoon and we're going to do all this, you know, quote unquote, cool shit and jump out of planes. And then the uh, couple of idiots decided to fly two aircraft into the world trade center and a couple others decided to fly into the Pentagon and one downed into a field and it was in Virginia. Anyway, um, we got to watch about a minute of that. I was in third phase doing, we were actually doing PT. We were doing, you know, push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and instructors came out and said, Hey, the, uh, somebody just flew a plane into the world trade center. And I remember us all started bitching and complaining that we were in third phase about to graduate from six months of buds. And why are they still messing with us? Like we thought this was a, one of those psychological, um, you know, shit storms that 
they were trying to this part of buds whatever it was called buds so they actually followed us into the um the uh living quarters where they where they stayed of course we stayed we slept outside um literally um and you would get followed into this big screen tv and yeah the towers are you know they're they're on fire and coming down and we were like holy shit like what what's happening so we didn't really understand it at the time as students like we were still just like gung-ho and just you know this is cool but the instructors their whole demeanor changed like they knew like they'd been in the teams for 10 years 15 20 depending on what, what you know, leadership level they were at and it was for them they knew like we're about to go to war um and i just i remember it like i i couldn't believe the um the whole shift that paradigm shift you want to call it from instructors being a certain way to like this really like hardened and everything they talked about after that was about you know if you did something wrong, well, how are you going to perform in combat? You know what I mean? It, it started going back to like, everything was now combat focused versus this one time, you know, when I was at buds or this one time on this training trip, you know, or this one time when we did this, everything started focused to like, you screw something up. Like, how are you going to, how, how are you going to perform in combat? You know, like that's, that's what the, the, the kind of whole shift in demeanor um, went to. And it was like, it was real. It got very real after that. So a question that I like to ask anyone who's actually been deployed, who's seen combat. Um, and the reason behind this is we get a very polarized view. And I say we civilians, obviously I'm a fireman. I'm not a member of the military. Um, a very polarizing view of war. Either the, you know, the one extreme is they're all a bunch of baby killers, you know, and then the other side is, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, you know, CNN versus Fox, basically. <laughs> um, and then in the middle ground are the men and women, barely, you know, children that we send over in uniforms to, you know, go fight for our country with an American flag or British flag or Australian flag on their shoulder. So those are the stories that I want to bring, almost like Sebastian Junger's town hall that he talks about. So when you were over there, regardless of the politics, obviously you had a very real reaction because, you know, you, you witnessed the towers falling as you were going through training. But were there any kind of things that you witnessed overseas, whether Iraq or Afghanistan, where you realized, okay, regardless of what sent me here, now I'm seeing with my own eyes some horrible people that we need to take care of? So... We, I mean, my mission on every deployment was going after um, high value targets for the most part. Um, and so, you know, we mostly saw kind of the worst of the worst over there. And, and yeah, I mean, of, of course there's, um, there's terrible things that happen in war, like horrible things. And we've all seen them. Um, we all hear about them and that stuff definitely does happen. Um, but, uh, I mean, what, what we were doing is exactly what we wanted to do. Like we, like I went to buds and went through, you know, um, my, my platoons and then selection after that, um, to go chase down, you know, bad guys that were taking out, you know, our soldiers 
um, you know, during the daytime hours on the street and, you know, taking off arms and legs and, and everything else. And so, you know, we, we felt we, we were doing a righteous thing. Um, we were fighting terrorists and we were fighting really bad people, um, that in, in wouldn't even think twice about killing you or your family or, you know, your, 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 your wife and kids. And, um, we're talking about civilian people that they wouldn't even think even blink an eye to where, um, you know, that's the opposite of, of the American way of the U S you know, individual, the U S soldier, you know, we're, we're doing everything in our power to protect civilians and, and take out, you know, the enemy, unfortunately, you know, things happen, but you know, these are, these are, these are not good people. And, um, you know, we enjoyed every minute of taking, um, you know, taking the fight to, to the enemy, if you want to call it that, um, without a doubt. And, and more that happened than, than any of the bad stuff you hear about a hundred percent, you know, there are bits and pieces of, of, of things that have happened that, you know, may not sit well, or, um, you know, stories you hear about, but you don't hear about like the thousand other stories that are good, similar to, you know, what we're hearing now about, uh, you know, law enforcement, you know, law enforcement's getting their ass kicked by the public. Um, but every, you know, there's always bad apple here and there. And, you know, they don't, they don't like to talk about all the good things that law enforcement does for us. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, what, what you're looking for here, but, uh, I, I enjoyed every minute of going overseas and fighting alongside some of the best individuals that I had the, um, privilege to work with. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Just your perspective. Now, the other side of the coin is kindness and compassion. So again, we get this vision of war being a terrible place. We get it painted again with the left and the right that we are at war with Iraq, with with Afghanistan. And the reality is, no, there are some extremists in those countries that are terrorizing and murdering their own people. And that's who our military are, are hunting down. And amidst that seems to be all these amazing stories of kindness and compassion that our members of the military witness, either within their own, you know, men and women or with the people that they're embedded with. So were there any moments of kindness and compassion that kind of resonate that really stuck with you in the time that you were overseas? I mean, here, I mean, I hope what I'm about to say gets out like to everyone who thinks that uh, we're a bunch of, you know, whatever you want to call them, warmongers or baby killers. I mean, when, when I used to go out uh, at night on an operation, not just me, like my whole unit, um, we literally took time to put chem lights in our pockets, like the crack, the, the ones that you crack that you can see at night, like red and blue and green. Um, I took extra water. I took candy. Um, took, I mean, anything that you can think of that wasn't like, obviously like weighing you down, but all these like little things that when we did get on a target and there were a bunch of women and children, I could crack chem lights and give them to the kids to play with. You know, I could hand out candy to them. I'd hand out water during the day because it was so hot over there. And of course we got as much as we needed. And who knows, I mean, when you see what these people live in, it's, it's heartbreaking. We have it so good over here. Um, my daughter was just telling me today, we walked up to get a cup of coffee right before this um, iced coffee, by the way, almond milk. Um, you know, 
it's just how how good we have it here in the U.S. When you see you know some of these other places, and like we didn't have to do that, and it wasn't just one person, it wasn't just me. It was like everybody, like everybody was taking chem lights out on Target. Everybody was taking candy. You know, I was handing out water um, when I was in a turret because I was up there and it was just easy to like hand to people. Um, we did that all the time. I don't think I've ever heard that once mentioned on a news story or written anywhere. But, you know, here we are about to go after like a high value target. And we're at the same time worried about making sure, you know, we have enough chem lights for the kids or there's some extra water if we need to hand it out. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you're, you're never going to hear that. I mean, if you, um, there's a, a friend of mine that I went through a selection with, um, he, he was killed in combat, uh, Adam Brown. There was a book uh, written called Fearless, amazing book, uh, amazing individual. He was actually my roommate, uh, BR Brown and Capone CA. And so there you go. I got there's, the book. There you go. Amazing. And, yeah. And I mean, you know the story then, right? When he, he went over to Afghanistan, I don't know it was the first time I'm going to chop this up. So everyone listening, I apologize, but I'm going to get most of it right. Uh, he, he noticed that there were just tons of kids over there without shoes. And he figured out a way to have, I don't know how many hundreds of shoes sent over. So I probably butcher the number. But that's basically what happened. He saw he saw children in Afghanistan who didn't have shoes in villages. Uh, again, in villages that may have been, I don't know if you want to call them good, bad. Maybe they were harboring an individual. Maybe maybe a terrorist was there. I don't know. But he took it upon himself to somehow reach back to the states and have a bunch of shoes sent over for these individuals. And shit like that happens all the time. Um, I wish we could hear about it more because really... Um, we, everybody I know that has gone over there is, is, is trying to seek out the enemy and trying to limit damage to civilian population, like on the highest level. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that's exactly that. This is the human experience. You wore a uniform. I wore a uniform, you know, but we're both, we were kids. We were in kindergarten once and then you became an, you know, a seal and I became a firefighter and then we transitioned out. And I think that's the problem with some of our men and women when they do transition is the struggle with identity, especially when when they come back home, you then, you know, have someone who has that baby killer thing or the opposite. Like, oh, yeah, you, you know, stacking bodies over there and patting you on the, the shoulder. And it's like, no, these are these are human beings that at times, you know, had to get in a flow state and do what you were paid to do. And other times showed, you know, moments of incredible kindness and compassion. And that's. The, the vision, that's the storytelling from our military that we do need to hear. Yeah. And, and then I'm telling you right now, that's 90 something percent of the individuals, right? Like I said, there's always bad apples, but no, I mean, the majority of individuals I work with were literally, um, they're the best guy, best people you could ever imagine that you'd ever want to work with, um, both intellectually, physically, um, all of it. So you're already in this, you know, very small percentage of, of members of the Navy. Um, but then there's obviously another very infamous tier one group within the SEAL community. What made you decide to test for them? And then, you know, what what position did you end up holding in that organization? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I guess now is it 10 years, maybe? 
Um, we didn't really talk much about um, SEAL Team Six, but it is now a a public uh, public knowledge, um, and you, mo- you know most uh, most individuals that are in special operations. Uh, at least I didn't know that there was a. a I didn't even know what a Tier One unit was, um, but. Uh, when I found out about a tier one unit, I just immediately said, okay, I want to do that. <laughs> I didn't know, I don't know that this, these guys do, um, they do, you know, other things that are, that are, you know, different, more focused on certain areas of, of, uh, of, of operating. And, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a whole nother selection. And so you go through just as much, uh, I don't want to say it's not like, it's not like buds where buds are trying to test your, your, you know, physical and mental fortitude, you know, this is more on, on skill, skill set and how well you react to certain situations and how quick you can think. And, um, definitely, you definitely, um, why I see you use your brain for, for, for all special operations, but, you know, they, they were testing you more on how, how well you can react to high stress situations and, and make decisions, make good decisions immediately, not bad decisions that like, a, a decision. I know there's an old, you know, a decision is better than none. Uh, I, I may, I may argue that one. Um, but they want to see you make good decisions in, in, in high stress situations. So that's another six month selection process that you're, you know, you're, you're running and gunning, shooting, jumping, uh, you get graded on everything that you do. And, um, you know, at the end of six months, you're standing with about 40 individuals that, you know, are, have proven their, their worth and, and, uh, you move on to, to different things. All right. Well, we won't explore that too deeply, but, uh, you know, obviously again, I just want to paint the picture that you were at that level. I know you were breaching, you know, you were a breacher within the organization as well. As you progress through your career, before we get to the transition out, had you and or Amber already seen signs of behavioral change, whether it's, you know, initially thought as PTS or something else? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So each um, each deployment I came back, each combat deployment, really after 9-11, I came back, um, you know, it was just, it was just different, you know, and, and for me, it was just normal because I was just morphing, right, into whatever I ended up. But, you know, for Amber and the kids, they obviously can see that change pretty radically, especially when you're gone for months at a time. Mm-hmm you come back a new individual. And so uh, every time one of our guys come home or girls, you know, you change. And for some, they, they're doing that for over 20 years, some at 30, some at 40. Um, but, you know, 20 years of sustained combat, that's a lot. You know, our nation's never experienced that. And I think there's, you know, I think there's a breaking point. And there's still, there's still people out there that will tell you that there's nothing wrong with them. And, and I think everyone's been affected in one way or the other. Um, I envy the in- individuals and I've said this before, you know, I envy, envy the individuals that can keep going, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're all tuned differently. Some can do 30 and I hope they're, they're fine. They're okay. Um, there's others that, you know, they see one, one friend, um, get killed in action and they're, they're suffering for life, you know, 
And so we're all different. I don't, you know, I don't want to judge. I think everybody's story should be heard. Um, I think we should learn from them, but, you know, after 20 years of sustained combat, there's, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done post military career. And, um, you know, I'm still working on it. And, you know, that changed, like I said, if you started it, you started at nine 11 and you're getting out now, it's, you know, it's 21 years of, of, uh, of change. So you're, you're definitely a different human being, uh, from, from, uh, from September 11, 01. Well, I mean, this, it's impossible not to change. I mean, if I think of, you know, my career, it was only 14 years as a firefighter, but, you know, saw and did a lot of things that even though when I look back, I, I was just so fortunate, so lucky. It's no, no other way to put it, lucky to have the upbringing that I had. I had some childhood trauma, but even that, the way my childhood was, there was almost like an ingrained ability to process that when I was young. So it's there, but it's not something that's debilitating. Um, but there's no way in hell James Gearing can be the same at 27 when I entered the fire service as I am now because of all the things I've seen, all the things I've had to do getting up, you know, I mean, all these tragedy, all these heartbroken families that we're exposed to, all the, the inability to save a life. I mean, these all weigh up. So you're going to be different. But there's a difference between that through line of you just, you know, being 20 years older, wiser and, you know, more skeptical <laughs> but there's another thing with you know um the side effects of other things pts and, and and trauma but i think when you talk about some people that are able to progress more from all these conversations it seems like again a common denominator is what did their life look like before they put the uniform on because if you had a lot of shit that was never ever addressed and then you became a cop a firefighter or a seal you're your foundation is a lot more vulnerable than someone like myself who was just fucking lucky to not be beaten by their, their father when they were four. I mean, I got smacked, but with a belt and stuff and never maliciously and never, you know, with, with, a, with a close fist. Um, and so I think that's a big part too. I think, you know, some people are because probably when you look at their earlier life, it kind of set them up for success. And I think a lot of people that I see that end up with a gun in their hand, you know, or in their mouth, when you reverse engineer, there's a lot of things that happen before they ever put a uniform on. I agree. Um, you're, I mean, you're spot on with that. We're, we never ever call out anyone, but you know, we're learning that a lot of childhood trauma is what is the makeup of, of a lot of our special operations units um, for whatever reason. And so now we have that childhood trauma and maybe you have some brain trauma from contact sports or whatever. And then you go in the military and you have, you know, you're a, you shoot a ton of guns and you're around a lot of explosives and then you go to war and you see a bunch of shit that most people don't have like you've seen. Um, and you then transition out of the military and it's like a tornado. <laughs> it's like a recipe you know, it's a recipe that, you know, one day it's just, it's going to stop. Like, it's just, you go, okay, you're done. And you start thinking back about all these different things that have happened and it upsets you and you go, man, I need a drink. Cause that's just like, you know, I just thought about, you know, John Doe, or I just thought about this incident. And then, you know, that drink puts you in a, in a state of even, you know, worse depression. And you start thinking about it more and, 
you know, you're, you're seeing this, the spiral now, right. And then it just, and then it just spirals out of control because you're, you know, you're numbing from, you know, an incident that has happened. But like you said, maybe, you know, all that stuff you took on as a child and then it just gradually progressed. Um, it's a recipe for, uh, you know, for, for big, big explosion at some point. So transition is definitely again where a lot of people struggle. Like I said, whether it's the identity, the you know lack of um, purpose, you know that we had while we were in the uniform, um, the the lack of tribe. You know, you leave that group of men that you were serving with for so long. So talk to me about what you know when you got to the point where you did transition out, and then what was that transition like for you? I mean, I was, I mean, I was super excited to, to, to transition. Like when I finally realized, like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm doing something, um, different than before. Um, you know, I had, it was like, okay, I'm starting a new journey here, I guess that'll be okay. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was, it was such a struggle. It was, uh, you didn't have, I didn't have the tribe. You, you mentioned Sebastian. Uh, Sebastian Younger. Uh, yeah. You didn't have, you know, you didn't have the tribe. You didn't have your community. You didn't have people to lean on. Um, you know, life was different. And at that point, you, you I mean, you slow down a little bit. Um, you know, my time in the, in the teams were very physical too. So I was, you know, always, you know, running, jumping, fighting, um, you know, very, very physical. And, you know, you jump in the private sector, if you, you know, you put on a shirt and tie, you're, you're, you know, it's a very cerebral, more cerebral life. And so, you know, you do have time to think about a lot of these different things. And, and a lot of these things begin to frustrate you and you don't have the outs that you had um, when you were in the military. And so, you know, again, these all add up to causing you more stress than probably maybe you even have. And you don't know how to deal with that stress. And, you know, it was, it was, it's so weird. I look back at my time in the military, like I never remember being like anxious, depressed, um, you know, upset, but, you know, upset, of course, around individuals that we lost. Um, but the bounce back with that was like immediate, you know, it was like celebrate their life, move on, boom, go, you know, mission driven. Like we have, we have work to do. This is, this is what's supposed to be, you know, like we expect to lose individuals in, in, in times of combat. And so, um, you know, or see something bad. Um, but, but once that stops and you do have time to reflect, um, at least what we're seeing, and I'm sure you've seen that's, that's when it starts to creep up on you. Um, you know, and then, and then again, we could always go back to, um, individuals that have, you know, serious head trauma or even mild head trauma, um, you know, the subconcussive blows are, you know, really affecting the day-to-day living for a lot of individuals and not everybody's the same. So, you know, one big boom, uh, could affect somebody, you know, a thousand little booms may affect somebody. And then you have everybody in between, um, and some affect more than others. So we can't judge, we can't say that, you know, well, that guy had, you know, four grenades go off and he was in eight IEDs and he's okay. Um, because this other guy, you know, hit his head on something, but like, we can't judge that. I don't know. I don't know how your, your, I don't know your, your brain makeup is. I don't know how hard your, your skull is. Like, I don't know. That's not, that's not for me to judge. 
And so everybody's, everybody deals with it in their own way. And we just got to take care of everyone individually. In the fire service, I've been a Rex where we've pulled on scene. There's one, uh, someone just abandoned their car on a freeway in the middle of the night. And in California, actually, is when I was with Anaheim. And this poor couple barreled into this parked car in the dark at probably 70, 80 miles an hour. We pull on scene and we're like, shit, I mean, these people have got to be dead. And we pull up and these two people walk from, you know, from the side of the road. And they're like, not only were they fine, they didn't even want to go anywhere to be checked out. They're like, no, we're totally fine. And we're like, Jesus Christ. And then I can think of a four-way stop sign where someone was drunk and blew through and hit this woman. Didn't seem to be that bad of damage in the car and she was dead inside. So another example of, yeah, I mean, you never know if, if a trauma is going to, you know, give you a bruise or cause a, you know, aortic um, aneurysm and, and you bleed out in 10 seconds. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing with trauma. We're all different. And obviously with the mental health side, we're all different. Some of us getting a dog works amazingly. Some people need Ibogaine. Yeah, some do need Ibogaine. <laughs> so let's get to that then. So you transition out. I can see how jarring working in finance would be because I, I talk about this quite a bit. There's a there's a sense of kindness and compassion that draws us into military police fire. We want to help. We want to protect. And I think with that childhood trauma element, you want to be a protector. You were victimized as a child. You want the buck to stop here. You want to you know be the person that protects other people from from predators. Then you transition out and that purpose isn't there as a real estate agent, as a financier. Um, and so, you know, I think that's when all that stuff comes back. You haven't got adrenaline anymore either. You haven't got that, you know, excitement that the job brought to you. So when did you and or Amber realize, you know, you were really spiraling downwards? You know, where was that bottom for you? And then walk me through your journey into psychedelics. Yeah, I mean, the, the spiral really started in... Um Started in two, I'd say 2010 when I left uh, really operational duty and went, uh, we moved to the West Coast, became an instructor. And uh, what I thought life was going to be good, it just started really declining at that moment. I think part of it was because I wasn't operational. I was away from my, my guys I had worked with for a number of years and probably the busiest time of, of, of the war uh, from, let's say, 06 to you know, 2010 or 06, 2010. And so, you know, it really, it really started there. Um, I was put on my first uh, antidepressant in 2010 while on active duty. And um, when I was medically retired in 2013, um, it just, you know, that effect kind of just kept trickling and, you know, I kept fighting it. I just kept, you know, thinking, I, this is, there's nothing here. I could work through this, but you know, from outsiders looking in now, and I talked to individuals, of course, that I know, and including, you know, Amber and the kids, yeah, it was horrible for them. You know, it was like, um, and I, I would say I was separated. So it was like 2013, I was out and, you know, slowly got worse with just heavier drinking, more uh, numbing, you know, coping with uh, life that I just didn't think was really meaningful at the time. Um, Amber had started looking into some brain clinics. Um, there was some, there was some money available and we spent a lot of money out of pocket, uh, just trying to figure out like if there's anything wrong with my head. Um, and we did, we found some, some, there, there was some, um, there was some scarring. 
Um, I was able to go, uh, luckily enough to Amen clinic, uh, which was, uh, they do spec scans and showed some areas of the brain where I didn't have a uh, blood flow that were, you know, supposed to, supposed to be working. And there were also, um, some markers for, you know, PTSD and depression. And I guess I want to say bipolar two, which I don't like to say because it's a miss, it's a very misdiagnosed thing. So, um, there's, there's a therapist that still argues that. Um, so I'm going to side with her, um, because she knew me really well. Um, and so, you know, just you had all these things uh, that were, were showing up and happening and I was getting angrier and, um, I was getting really frustrated at the system. I was just like trusting the system, the Western medicine approach of like, here's, you know, you, you have medical insurance. And so here's the drugs that you need because you have PTSD. Um, that's the, that's what the military told me, um, major depressive disorder, MDD, um, alcohol abuse disorder, um, in a host of other things. And so you get these cocktails of, of, uh, antidepressants, SSRIs, and some anti-anxiety medication, uh, some medicines that uh, help you avoid um, nightmares, uh, and then, you know, medicines that help you uh, think clearer or or focus more. So things like uh, Adderall, um, and there's these two others uh, that I I was put on, I forgot the name of them, but they used to give me really bad headaches. Um, Anyway. Uh, and then also, of course, Ambien to sleep and then tried a few others because, you know, I was concerned about Ambien. I said, hey, I used Ambien for many years um, while on active duty. And I know um, it's, Ambien is not good for you. Dr. Kirk Parsley will tell you <laughs> all about that. Um, and uh, this is just not the way to live, James. And I was at a point where I was, I thought Amber and the kids would be better off, excuse me, better off without me here because I felt like I was this burden of, you know, everything was for dad, you know, all like everything we had to do was around what I needed. Um, You know, I'm not in a good mood. Everyone had to walk on eggshells and I was, you know, snapping at everything. I was angry. It was throwing things through our, our, our windows at the house um, and then completely reckless came to a point where I couldn't care less if you were law enforcement or it just didn't matter. Like I just didn't care. You know, I was like, what matters? Like what I used to do in the past mattered. You know, I had purpose there. Um, I was with a group of people who had purpose and we were all fighting for the same thing. And now it's like, what is this private? sector life it um it's just it's bullshit you know everyone's selling some widget or some service that may be good maybe not most of the times it was honestly bullshit uh individuals were bullshit and so that was tough to um that was also you know part of the part of the issue and to a little to my knowledge um amber and kirk parsley were working in the background for about a year to get me to go, um, do this, uh, what I thought at the time was pretty insane, crazy sounding, um, I don't call it experimental because I don't think you could experiment on stuff for thousands of years. It was highly, 
We just don't have, we just didn't do enough, you know, double blind placebo clinical trials at academic reviewed. And we had to make sure that they were done correctly and spend probably about a billion dollars once you get to like phase three or at least a hundred million, 150 million and up uh, what's your faith phase three trials. And so if it didn't do that, then these don't, these don't matter. And um, I just committed. It was, there was a point, it was finally at a point where I couldn't take it anymore. Amber and the kids couldn't take it anymore. Um, you know, we weren't going to stay together. Like we were, you know, we were ready to part ways. Like we had to, it was not, you know, at that point it was Amber had to do more for the kids. Like she had to take care of the kids. Like she, they were, they were all living with an individual that really wasn't a husband, a dad, you know, it was just a, a pain in the ass. And, you know, I said, you know what, I've done enough research on this now. Um, and I understand that these medicines were initially intended for, you know, psycho-spiritual growth, um, for a host of, 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 uh, you know, things, uh, wrong with the body, uh, both mind and body and, and spiritual too. Right. So these medicines have been used for thousands of years, um, for spiritual connection. And I, you know, I kind of took a leap of faith. Um, I always joke that I'm a guinea pig. I'll do anything. If you tell me it's going to make me you know, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, better. Um, yeah. Sign me up. Um, I'll, I'll try as a friend of mine says, I'll try anything twice. Um, it's his line though, not mine. Um, and uh, I went out of the country to do uh, a psychedelic medicine called Ibogaine, which um, is synthesized from, I don't know if that's the right term, but it's, it's, ta- it's an alkaloid of the Iboga plant. Um, I believe Iboga gets to about 10 feet and they have some, you know, they have big, big, you know, bush uh, leaves and these fruits that grow off the leaves, but at the base of it, is uh, the root and they take the outside of the root bark off and then they shave down uh, the, the, the root itself and, or like the, the wood part of it. And that's called Iboga. And I believe there's 13 alkaloids. The, the, the one uh, the most prevalent in there is Ibogaine and Ibogaine is what um, is really, uh, I believe exploding right now in popularity because of its, one, it's anti-addictive properties. Um, nothing comes close to uh, to anything for an opioid heroin addict. Um, it completely scrubs the receptors, and the, the efficacy rates are through the roof. But you know, pharma doesn't want to hear that somebody has to take something once or twice um, without any withdrawal symptoms. Um, so, I mean, Iboga and Ibogaine are just like a unbelievably um, healing and curing, I'll say curing. I don't know. I, I suppose you're not supposed to use that term, um, medicine. And, um, that's just for addiction and for trauma. You know, we've been doing this now for five years. I haven't heard anything that you come, you know, I, there, there are, there are, are psychedelic medicines that are really powerful and really working things like ayahuasca and psilocybin, you know, DMT and, Others that uh, are, are fantastic, of course, MDMA, which will be federally legalized first for PTSD. These drugs are great and they're working really well, but 
if you want the nuclear option, you go to Ibogaine or Iboga. It's not a fun journey. Um, it's going to kick your ass. And, uh, but you're going to come out the other side whole again and reset and with a new kind of for many life purpose and, and mission. Um, and so uh, that's what happened to me. I mean, I, I committed to the medicine. Um, it's about a 12 hour, really tough uh, experience where you it's, it's almost like, it's like a, it's like a movie of your life right in front of your eyes and the medicine knows how to work. Um, you, even though you go in there with certain intentions, um, if you're hiding some of those intentions or you're, you're, you have, you have other things that are causing blockages in your life, I is going to go find those and you're going to face those demons throughout in, during your journey. And as you can imagine, opening up those floodgates can be really difficult and traumatic for people. Um, but as we all know, the only way to fight fear is through and you, uh, you have to face those fears in order to grow. And so, you know, if you had some of those childhood traumas that are affecting you later in your life, you, you got to go back and face those childhood traumas again. You know, that's what therapists pull out of you. That's what you're supposed to get to when you're doing talk therapy or, you know, some of the other um, treatments uh, that you do with therapists, but it could take years. Psychedelics done correctly could potentially take, you know, days, weeks, months, but they happen pretty quickly. I mean, it's, it's like a time machine to get better. Well, it's amazing to hear, and I've had so many people on the show that I think have gone through through you. So we've got Jeff Nichols, Dan Cirillo, Nick Norris, Johnny Walker. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So people can hear these testimonies of, you know, these elite operators that, you know, initially thought they were bulletproof and superheroes, and then, you know, that reconnected with their humanity and then struggled you know it's used alcohol used opiates and then found ibogaine and you know it's it's just absolutely amazing to hear it now i want to circle around to something you said quickly because this is again a kind of revolution a revolution a revelation i had earlier on when people talk about suicide there's always this this conversation of cowardice how could they you know how could they leave their family behind you know what what a coward you talked about being a burden that's the huge kind of perspective that lends into into the broken mind is just that so many of these men and women get to the point where they feel like they're a burden so the selfless thing even though it makes no sense to a healthy mind to their mind at that moment in time the selfless thing is to remove yourself from your family because you feel like such a burden you feel like you're ruining their life so was that what you were feeling at that moment i mean a hundred percent I mean, I, I wasn't thinking about me. I mean, I was thinking about me that I had nothing to really live for, but I was really thinking about Amber and the kids just going, well, if I remove myself from this situation, then they don't have to deal with me anymore, which is causing them to be stuck in their mind, body, and life. And so if, if I remove myself, then they can, they can flourish. You know, Amber can find somebody that, you know, she would be, you know, a better husband to her, you know, and then the kids could, could uh, not have this, this, this father that was just judgmental and just not, you know, not that I was ever um, like bad to the kids, but I was still like not present. You know, I still didn't have a relationship. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm not here, then, 
then all these great things can happen for them. And yeah, maybe I'll be missed, maybe not, but they'll go on and live this like fruitful life. And that's kind of the way I was rationalizing it. And, you know, God forbid I run into somebody that ever says someone who takes their life is cowardice. And I remember individuals that I worked with, I remember uh, you, you would hear that. And, and I would agree with that just because like, uh, what do you call it when, when it's a group think, is that what it is? Group think when, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really, you're not really, you're not even understanding or really thinking about what they're saying. You're just in this group and everyone's kind of agreeing. Um, but no, uh, it's the, it's, it's the opposite. I mean, you know, these individuals who take their lives are some of the toughest you know, some of the toughest people on the planet, there's real shit going on. You're not thinking clearly. Not rational. It's not rational thinking, or maybe if it is rational thinking, it's they're doing it to what they think in their mind may make it easier for others. Right. If they're not, if they're not here, um, it is not cowardice. It's, it just, it just is. And unfortunately, um, you know, they feel that the system may have, um, have, uh, have shorted them, you know, they may not feel like they're getting the help they need, or they are in so much pain, either physically and, and or mentally that they just can't take it anymore. And I don't know how that is cowardice. Um, because I know some really good people that took their lives and I would never, <laughs> I would consider them the most like hardened warriors that I've ever worked with. Um, so it saddens me when, and most of those individuals who say it are just, they don't get it or they're just not experiencing it. And I understand the part that they're not experiencing it. Um, I know plenty of guys who say, well, I don't understand this PTSD thing. I don't have any. Well, my next question, and I usually just, I don't say anything, but um, you know, it's, you know, how, how much did you actually do? You know, how many times have you stuck your face in front of a, in front of a door? How many times you've been on the receiving end of gunfire? Um, how many friends did you bury? Um, you know, I could go on and on and on. And, you know, again, I, I envy those folks. You're, you're a lot tougher than I am. <laughs> well, I would ask them how much you drink at night. You yeah. Know what I mean, I would, that's probably a, a you know, a real look in the mirror, you know, if you say you're good, but then you have to dive into the bottle every evening, you're probably not good. Yeah, you're, you're probably not. And, and I am finding out that um, there are more and more individuals that do need help. They just even ha haven't asked for it yet or just haven't come to the, you know, the grips that um, there's, there's something wrong there. And you know what? It's, okay to raise your hand and say, Hey man, I need a timeout or I just need a, I need a tune up because it's okay when your shoulder's blown out to go see every specialist in the world to get you back, you know, um, firefighting on the front lines, going after terrorists, you know, you'll, you'll go see the best doctors. They'll cut you open. They'll tie you up. You'll do rehab forever. And everyone would just say, oh, yeah, you know, he's just getting his shoulder worked on. He's going to be back. He's going to be fine. But you raise your hand and say, you know what? There's something going on between my ears. 
like there's just something not right. Like I'm getting headaches or I'm forgetting stuff or I'm really angry, you know, or I'm depressed, you know, now you're, you're a cuckoo, you're, you're damaged. And, and all you want to do maybe is go get a tune up, go get your head worked on. Maybe go get some, go get some, um, some imaging done, you know, maybe talk to some folks, um, maybe, you know, you just, you just need, you know, you just need to go to someone who, who understands your, your, your brain and help you, you know, help you fix it. And then maybe you can get back to where you need to go. Maybe it's back in the fight. Maybe it's doing something totally different. Maybe it's just trying to be a normal, you know, human being, a dad, husband, wife, or whatever. Um, so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's what we're trying to do is break this stigma of, of, uh, just asking for some, just for some, some help, a little bit of empathy, you know, maybe if you're not, you're not here yet, but understand that you're still the same person. You're just going through some stuff and you'd like to work on it. I don't think that's bad. Absolutely not. Well, I think that's why the messaging needs to be, you know, you hear people say, Oh, think about your family. We'll say that to someone who thinks that they're a burden to their family. You just kind of, you know, put the final nail in the coffin. So I think we need to get people to realize if you feel like a burden, if you're having that self-talk that the world would be better off without you, then that's the red flag. If your family see that from the outside, that's the red flag that we need to go because there was no, no more heartbreaking story than we had in Florida about two months ago where we had a male police officer take his own life. And then I think it was a week later, his girlfriend took her own life and they had a brand new baby with no parents. And people were like, well, how could they do that? Exactly, because you're thinking with a normal, healthy brain and trying to get inside the head of someone who was in crisis. And it just doesn't, you can't think that way. So the moment that that makes sense, that removing yourself from this world will make it better when actually the reality is the complete opposite. The moment you have those thoughts, that's exactly where you need to put your hand, if not before, put your hand up and say, I need help. This is, this is in a really bad place now. And I know plenty of people that have done it. You know, I know plenty of people that have, that have, you know, checked themselves into facilities or at least called a friend or just something to say, Hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm not right. Or giving their guns away, you know, just all of all the above. Um, and you know, most of those individuals are doing really, really well now. Right. So they, they needed, uh, you talked to all of them on, on your show, all the, all the individuals you mentioned, you know, I won't say anything they didn't, but I'm sure they said the same thing. They were at their lows and, you know, they, they searched for answers and they found them and now they're freaking all those guys are killing it. Like they're all doing so well. It's like, it's incredible. Um, it's really incredible how, how well they're doing. And, and I'm just, I'm super pumped to know that, um, this is just, uh, another thing that we need to take care of a really good, I joke, you know, I've said this a million times, we're really good at taking protein and creatine and, you know, NO2 and all this, these other things that you put in your body to like work out and run faster and lift more weights. But we forget to do the stuff for our brains that really operate everything. Um, you know, it is the, it is the platform that operates everything else. And so, you know, we do need to take time to do nothing, you know, meditate, uh, take supplements that help, um, just feed it what it needs in order to work better or maintain. Absolutely. Well, so the, the, 
project I'm doing with Ryan, the human performance project in the 7X, um, that was inspired tragically by the loss of Ryan's sniper partner, David Metcalf. Um, I'm going to get Jamie on the show to tell his story too. Another person who's been on the show is Sarah Wilkinson, who lost Chad. Uh, you know, obviously another resounding element, as we touched on earlier, was TBI. So, you know, I think Jeff, Jeff Nichols is someone who talks about that as well. So you went through all this, as you said, it was identified as PTSD. Talk to me about the TBI, excuse me, the TBI element, how you're finding, you know, Ibogaine and some other psychedelics as treatment and how that's being misdiagnosed sometimes as purely PTSD. Yeah. So, you know, just the, you know, the, the people you just mentioned, you know, David Metcalf, uh, we were, you know, we went to buds together. We were in the class 236. And I think I want to butcher this. He was either the honorman or the fire in the gut. Anyway, he was a stud. Um, he was a pure stud and not, not a cowardice. Uh, if, if anybody wants to speak out about that, I mean, that guy, that guy was, he was, he was, he was amazing. Um, and then, you know, Chad, um, I, I worked with Chad, um, over at the squadron and another guy who just, just a phenomenal performer and individual and, and you would never see it coming, but, um, yeah, you know, his wife, Sarah, who you know, sits on our, um, board of directors at vets, it, it was the, it was the reason we really came out public to tell this story and to talk about psychedelic medicine because we were sitting at his funeral in Virginia beach and Amber was just looking around and I was looking around and she, you know, it was just, we just said, man, is this what we're going to do now in the next 20 years is that we've been in this funeral home. I don't even know how many times for individuals killed in action. And now we're going to be in here for uh, individuals that are, are death by suicide. Like we can't, we can't keep our mouths shut anymore. And we felt, we, we felt bad because we also felt that maybe if we spoke out a little bit earlier, maybe there, you know, maybe there would have been some hope there or something that we could have done um, to prevent this, you know, tragic incident. And so we just said, okay, we're, we're going to make a deal where we're going to speak out about this. I don't care if I'm never offered a normal job again, because somebody thinks it's weird. Um, you know, so I kind of looked at it as, I think this is the right thing to do. I don't care who doesn't believe in what we're speaking about, but if they can't wrap their heads around um, what we're doing is for the benefit of others, then, then they need to go get their head checked out. And so you know, just going back to, you know, you spoke about Dave, you spoke about Chad, um, you spoke about Sarah, you know, they were a big part of where we are today and why we're doing this. I miss those, miss those too dearly. Um, but David had serious, you know, he had TBI, he had traumatic brain injury and it's causing, you know, all the shit that you hear about and, you know, that, Operator syndrome came out a number of years ago and talked about how, um, you know, they, they talked about special operations uh, individuals in there just for the amount of, you know, gunfire and, and explosive work. And, and there's, um, and, and that 
the majority of special operations veterans are around those type of things more than, 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 um, conventional soldiers. Although, um, conventional soldiers, of course, do, you know, a host of other things that special operations guys don't do. So I don't want to get into like, who's, who's worse off, but that, that, that study initially was on special operations veterans and the amount of, of, of sub-concussive and concussive blows that individuals are around and it's causing these micro tears in the brain and the micro tears are causing like just imbalance in our bodies that are causing us the ability to, or the inability to sleep. Um, our, our hormones are out of whack. I mean, I have friends that like come back at 35 years old with their testosterone levels under 300. Um, you know, I'm sure the same in your world, um, James, but like, this is not normal. Right. And low testosterone like that causes an individual to be depressed or angry um, and vice versa. And, and you have all these comorbid um, diagnoses that, you know, how does a doctor even know what to prescribe? Right. So what they know is like, Oh, you're angry. You're depressed. You're, you have anxiety when you're in crowds. Well, you have PTSD. So we're going to give you the, we're going to give you this Brown bag full of all these prescription medicines for PTSD. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to look inside your brain yet. We're just going to give you all these medicines. Why would we take a photo of what's happening inside before we just start treating it? Like you do to every other part of your body. Right. And so there is a, there's an overlap between uh, I, I call it MTBI or traumatic brain injury and, and, and post-traumatic stress um, and all the host of other um, diagnoses that come along with it. And so, you know, the research it's getting stronger. I mean, I, I know there's, there's good work going on, um, but it's a very, it's very difficult to deal with. Again, when, when you really don't know what you're dealing with, you're like, is this a brain thing? Is this a psychological thing? You know, is this childhood trauma? Is this wartime trauma? Um, is it a traumatic brain injury? I, I don't know. Is it low testosterone? Um, and, uh, you know, I think we got a lot more work to do trying to figure out how to, treat the whole human, right? This kind of integrative medicine or holistic health, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's how we need to be approaching this effort is from a, you know, mind, body, uh, spirit, um, preventative care. Um, and for us that are a bit damaged, then, you know, we need to, you know, we, we need to fix things, but we could also work on things uh, prior, prior to them happening. Absolutely. And like you said, it's usually, you know, all those elements is going to be a combination of everything, perfect storm of all those things. And sadly, as you touched on, I think at the beginning, or maybe I was thinking of another conversation, um, you know, the, the real test for this kind of damage has to be done post-mortem. So you can't just pull out the brain and look at it and then pop it back in someone when they're still alive. So I think that's another tragic you know barrier to to progressing in that medicine so i think just has to be the assumption you know whether you're in law enforcement i've had people on here that, that taught breaching so they were there breach after breach after breach you know getting this concussion over and over again well it's the same with our cancer presumption and some of the other things in the fire service you are awake 24 hours a day every third day there's your presumption you don't need to show me oh there's you know there's, this cancer came from that car fire back in 1997. You know, no, you were up every fucking third day. There's your prevention. It's the same with this. If you were exposed to concussion, then you know, there just needs to be an assumption. You did this for our country. You come home. We're going to take care of you now. Yep. Which some will argue 
we do a good or we don't do a good job doing. <laughs> there's room for well, improvement. <laughs> you know, there's always room for improvement. I think if you think you can, you, you stop or it's time to stop improving. It's time to figure out to, to do something else at that point. But we could always, we could always improve um, forever. I mean, shit, my dad improved to the day he died of pancreatic cancer. He probably lived the best years of his life the last two or three years just because he was in such a good state of mind um, and just learned that, you know, the way he was prior to that was not, was not cool. Um, so he learned, um, and I think he gave him a couple extra years. Was it the diagnosis that was the the pivot in that? Yeah, I think it was the diagnosis and it was the, uh, it was a diagnosis and they gave him three months to live. And it was the fact that Amber called him every single day and talked about spirituality and just, um, just life. And he really like, just kind of sprouted after that, you know, it, what it was 70, 70 years old. So, um, but you know, I, I said it earlier, I don't think, I don't think, um, at least for veterans, you know, the VA and, and those that are covered under TRICARE, other insurance, you know, at the individual level, I think everybody cares and everybody's trying, but that's not good enough. You know, um, we need to figure, figure something out. It's really, I mean, even individuals who have all the money in the world, it seems to have, they seem to have a hard time finding where to find the right, um, specialists, the right treatments. Uh, you know, I've heard about stuff years after I left the military, like, Oh, you didn't know about this program? No, I didn't. Um, I didn't at all. Like, why didn't I know? Like I was medically retired. Like I went through a bunch of shit, um, because I was having some, some issues and like, I'm, I think I should know about that specific program that takes individuals that have, um, you know, things going on with their head. And, uh, yeah, I mean, some of these programs are there, but they're just, you don't know about them or maybe they're, maybe they're not put together. Well, I don't know, but I do think the private sector needs to step in a little bit. Um, if they're able to, to, to augment, you know, or, or take over some of the, some of the public, um, facing, um, you know, treatments and, and healthcare um, protocols and, and, and other things that we could do. Well, I want to get to the creation of vets because obviously like so many people on the, on the show, as I mentioned, whether they're military, police, fire, have come out of that profession and then found other ways to give. I mean, Ryan, the Sons of the Flag and Bird's Eye Projects, perfect example. Um, but talk to me about, so you had this Ibogaine journey, this experience, what was the other side like for you? And then I, as you walk me through that, and then let's talk about that kind of moment where you went, okay, I, I need to bring this to, to other men that I work with. Yeah. So um, the, the protocol I did was Ibogaine, uh, followed by 5-MeO-DMT, which is, um, which is a molecule that initially came from the Sonoran Desert Toad, um, and it has become so popular that they've moved to a, a synthetic version of it, uh, which is 
completely, it's the same molecule. It's fine. It's great. Um, but the two together work very synergistic. Um, and I think the Ibogaine beat me down and helped me kind of clear what was going on in terms of like my trauma and reset, you know, kind of reset my central nervous system and the, the five MEO DMT, um, really, uh, introduced me to, uh, more of a spiritual life. Um, <laughs> you know, it was very, it was so profound. Uh, I really can't explain, uh, explain the experience, but, um, if you're ever wondering whether there's more, a more powerful being or energy, uh, at play here, um, there's definitely no doubt, uh, if you can get to the right place. So that was my experience. And, um, we just wanted to pay it forward. I mean, the, the change, it was so radical. My thinking when I, when I got out of my, 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 I began experience that, um, I turned to Amber, I saw her, she, she flew in and I just said, this is exactly what the guys need. Like, this is, this is it. Like, I can't even believe this has been hidden. I can't believe more people don't know about it. I went to the doctor at the time and I just said, Hey, I assume thousands of veterans have, have done this. He's like, no, no, there's a few Marines, like a couple, like maybe like a long time ago or like one or two Marines or something. Um, and then there was like one other seal. And I just said, why? You know, I was like, I almost got angry. Um, and I, and I turned to Amber. I just said, this is it. Like, this is, this is what, this is what they need. I mean, we're all doing the same shit. They're handing us antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and antipsychotics for some and medicine to go to sleep and medicine to stay awake, medicine to focus. Um, and all you need is a plant medicine that's literally been on, on this earth for thousands of years and been used, uh, the correct way for forever. And, um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll fuck that up somehow, but, um, yeah, I mean, to me, I found, I felt like I found the answer and all I wanted to do is pay it forward. And so I didn't know how to do that. So I figured, well, I need to do it the same way that it was done for me. Um, Kirk Parsley and, and Mikhail Vega, they worked in the background together to, um, you know, raise a little bit of funding for me to be able to afford this treatment because it's not cheap. Hopefully it gets cheaper and we, we, we will have failed when um, psychedelic medicine does become federally legalized here, which uh, MDMA will be within the year, uh, psilocybin within the next two years, uh, psilocybin will be federally legalized in, um, in Oregon within the next year. And then, so we're going to have to know how to, how to be able to treat people uh, of lower incomes, not just people who have four or $5,000 to spend on these things. Other, otherwise we definitely have failed. And, but the, it's coming, it's happening. Um, these medicines work and, and um, you go back to that's We, we wanted to pay it forward. So we started raising money on a grassroots effort. I think um, Amber's goal was to get 12 individuals over the next 12 months I believe we funded 35 individuals. Wow. That year. Um, and then it just kind of naturally progressed like grassroots effort. 
um, found some really good individual donors um, that were really part of um, just really into what we were doing and knew we can drive change. And so we have some, we have some great, we have a great donor base, uh, believe in the cause. Um, and we have funded now, I don't like to put a direct number on it, but it's um, several hundred uh, over, I'd say uh, definitely over 500 that we uh, have funded through, through the nonprofit for individuals to go outside the U S and do these treatments. And we're treatment agnostic. So we're not a treating entity. We can't be a treating entity as a 501 C three, but we can uh, award grant scholarships and that's what we do. And so we have three pillars of vets. One is, Resources, meaning we, you apply, we grant you a scholarship, we give you the education about psychedelic medicine, how they started, how they're being used, where they're going. You make the choice as an individual and you have to do it in a country where it's legal or unregulated or we will not grant you that scholarship. And so we have vetted retreats and clinics all throughout the world um, that we know are safe and that are doing good work. And um, and so we provide somewhere between 150 and 200 scholarships a year. Um, in our data, database, we actually have thousands of applications and, um, you know, the, we just can't keep up with the, with the, the demand right now. It's, it's crazy. Um, so we provide resources. We are focused also now on research. Um, without research, we can't move the dial in, in D.C. Uh, with the lawmakers. So we have several studies going on. We have a study with Stanford that's just finishing up the treatment portion uh, 30 individuals with mild traumatic brain injury. They're going to do Ibogaine. Uh, they do fMRI um, imaging and a bunch of cognitive batteries. And so uh, that study is very promising. Um, I think you're going to hear a lot about it in the next about year to year and a half when those results come out. Um, and then we have some data collection efforts going on uh, with Ohio State and Johns Hopkins and we have a, several other uh, proposals in hand, uh, psilocybin with 5-MeO-DMT, uh, with MDMA, couples therapy through the VA. And so there's just, there's a lot happening. And so that's the research efforts and that costs money, as you know. And then the third pillar is advocacy work. So, you know, uh, Amber and I, and along with the VETS team, um, we have grown to a pretty significant team now. It's just some amazing individuals that we're working with. Um, you know, our, our efforts in Washington, D.C., uh, lobbying and talking to lawmakers and educating uh, just kind of what, what we, what we do, where we came from, why this is working. Um, they'll look at us and, and say like, Hey, we're not, um, you know, we're not hippies at Woodstock that we're just kind of running around, uh, you know, on, on, on these medicines, you, you know, utilizing them as recreational drugs. Like these are, these are powerful medicines that, um, when used correctly are, are literally life-changing and life-saving for generations. And so we really need to pour money into more research. We need to allow access to these medicines right here in the U S for people who are suffering, uh, to, to, to be able to, to have the same experience that myself and, you know, all the others that have come through and that are doing these, you know, this stuff is happening all over the place, whether it's legal or, or illegal, 
you know, unfortunately we could only fund obviously legitimate above board, um, uh, individuals that are going for these treatments in, in like I said, places that are legal or unregulated. Um, but people are getting healing everywhere on their own because like, what would you do if you weren't getting the, the success you needed or the treatment you needed? Um, and you probably go, you probably go find out where these are being offered and, and you'd go, um, you know, you'd go pay money or whatever. So we just have to, you know, we believe that these, these have to be done correctly. We, we do believe that they need some, some oversight and it needs to be regulated. I, I'm, you know, I'm not convinced yet that these medicines just need to be like turned into the, into the market, just kind of like as a free for all, um, for people to use, you know, who they want, when they want. Um, these are powerful. Like these are not, these medicines are nothing to, to, to take lightly. Um, they should be approached with like huge respect. There needs to be a ton of preparation, uh, prior to having these experiences. And then there needs to, on the back end, you know, a significant portion of integration support, uh, from therapists after to bring that person back into reality. And if you can, you know, take these psychedelic drugs and then wrap them into just an amazing therapeutic program, um, you have, you have a formula that can't be touched. Absolutely. Hundreds of people on here tell you the same exact story. Yeah, well, like I said, several have been on this podcast too. And it's something, it just makes so much sense to me. And the the perspective, the lens that I've had with the, the epic failure of the prohibition of drugs has been as a firefighter and a paramedic. So, you know, I've watched, I've pulled, 50, you know, 15-year-old, you know, a sheet over a 15-year-old um, corpse that has, you know, died for some drug deal gone wrong or protecting his quote-unquote turf. I've watched the homelessness, the prostitution, the overdoses. So, you know, that... Anyone who puts their hand on the heart as a first responder knows that that has created so much death and destruction. And we've empowered the underworld and we've, you know, driven the people having mental health crises that turn to addiction into the shadows. And, you know, sadly, we find their corpses. The other side of the, the, the conversation is that we have men and women that fight for America, UK, Australia, who then come home and cannot seek the very treatment that actually heal them for the service that they gave to their country without going overseas. And that is another, you know, completely unacceptable element. And just as you said, the kind of, if there's some acceptance, people like, oh, yeah, yeah, but you know, I don't think people should be able to have access to them. Well, we're not talking about putting meth in, you know, the supermarket. We're talking about decriminalizing it. You're caught with meth. You're not thrown into a prison cell. You're funneled into mental health help and addiction help. And it's the same with this. No, you know, MDMA and psilocybin shouldn't be, you know, on the on in the shops. Or maybe recreational psilocybin. Maybe I don't know, but. But, you know, Ibogaine and those kind of things that are therapeutic should absolutely be in the hands of the well-trained medical community that are familiar with those and, and the counselors. And I had uh, and at least accessible, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So and I had uh, Dr. Ben Sessa on, who's from the University of Bristol in the UK, and they have amazing success with MDMA-led 
therapy and they don't prescribe MDMA. You don't go leave and then go to a rave on your own. You, you have MDMA, your kind of internal walls come down. You go through a counseling session. I think it's three of them. It's like one week, third week, and then six weeks. And then that's it. And they're seeing this continue to work. Now, I, as a young man in the UK, could find MDMA anywhere recreationally, but they cannot use that is it's purely in their research so again you know whether it's psilocybin whether it's ibogaine whether it's you know mdma these are proven to work and yet our ridiculous backward prohibition laws that were founded on racism and job justification have continued to stack the bodies for the last 80 years so we talk about show me the studies well there's the most epic longitudinal study of what a fucking complete failure prohibition is and here's yet another conversation that underlines why we need to decriminalize some of these drugs, put them back in the hands of the medical community so we can start healing our first responders and our veterans and everyone else who can benefit from it on our own country's soil. Yeah, I agree. We, we have to turn into a health problem, not into a criminal problem. Like you just mentioned, you know, those individuals that are hooked on these, some of these drugs, like you throw them in a jail, like what's going to happen? They're, they're going to get worse. Like it's, it's not like they're going to get any better, um, you know, but, but if you take that individual and we rehabilitate that person and try to put them back into society, I mean, I know it's easy to say difficult to execute, but much better than the alternative, which is just to like throw everybody in jail who has get caught with like, I don't know, a few, you know, a bag of mushrooms in their pocket or, you know, some cocaine or whatever. Um, again, it's case by case scenario. Um, so I'm not going to sit here, but We've, we've seen the war on drugs has completely failed and wasted a ton of money um, for certain. And both sides of the aisle will, will say that now. So it's not, that's not a, uh, you know, that's not a partisan thing. It's definitely a bipartisan issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, smuggling, selling, that's a whole different conversation. I'm talking about personal use for the app. Yeah, so, and going back to your MDMA uh, conversation around PTSD, you know, Amber and I are, are working closely with the VA right now and with you know Rick Doblin of MAPS to um, to really build these um, these studies, the clinical trials around couples MDMA therapy, um, you know, for the VA. It's gonna, you know, we want we want we want to have access to these medicines as soon as possible. So the the faster we can um, you know build these trials and and show that these medicines are quite effective and more effective than what's currently being offered, the quicker they will be able to get in the hands of you know first responders. Um, military veterans uh, and, you know, even low income, you know, the low income population, which again, I think we have failed if these uh, medicines are only offered for uh, wealthy individuals that can afford them because insurance is not going to pay. I don't think for a while that's going to take some time, um, but we have to have, you know, also a robust data collection effort to make sure that we're showing that these drugs are efficacious and they're working um, because we still have to play, I feel within the system. You know, you could say, screw the system. Um, you know, I say, yeah, you know what? A lot of the system doesn't work. A lot of system does work. Um, we just have to figure out how to, you know, find the right way to, to work with the system to allow these medicines to be uh, accessed. Absolutely. Well, for people listening, where can they find vets and vets is veterans exploring treatment solutions. So where can they find that online? Um, if they're out there hurting, how can they put an application in? And then also how can they donate if they're in a position to do that? Yeah, excellent. So if, uh, 
those out there that are listening, uh, we are at vetsolutions.org. That's V-E-T solutions.org. Uh, there's a ton of material on the website. Um, there's application under healing grants on the drop-down menu under healing grants. There's an e-course that we had built that's um, just phenomenal. Uh, we get um, we get people uh, all the time that you know send in notes and just compliment on how well that course was put together. And it's just it's a really great. Uh, it's kind of like psychedelics one on one, but it takes you all the way back to how they were, you know, where they started, how they were in, in initially intended for use, and kind of how they've grown to where they're at today, and how they're being used um, for, you know, for all different type of, of, of issues. So vetsolutions.org. Uh, there's also a donate um, button on the website. Uh, I believe we're accepting cryptocurrencies now. Um, we'd like to, we'd like to accept them now that they're down so we can sell them. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, um, please support us. Follow us on Instagram, follow us on LinkedIn uh, I think we also have a Facebook page, I'm sure. Beautiful. Well, Marcus, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, firstly, the work that you're doing, as with so many people I had on here, that, that as I mentioned before, leave a position of service and then carry on to serve outside. Um, but also to have the courage and vulnerability to tell your story, because as I'm sure you know, you, you found yourself, it's that kind of storytelling. It's that kind of um, you know, door opening, as it were, that saves lives. This, this facade of masculinity that we were raised on, the kind of John Rambo, John Wayne bullshit, I think is the reason we've you know been to a lot of funerals, you and I both. So by having these conversations that someone from SEAL Team 6 can tell the story that they do and, and continue to. I mean, I hate the fact that you're still struggling and you're, you're getting these, these symptoms now that are worrying you, but that's the reality of these journeys that, that we're on, you know, mid and post service so i just want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time today yeah james thank you and just you know just for the record i'm 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 in a great place i'm in the best place i've ever been ever um you know just um mentally spiritually um i i am having some headaches that i don't like and so i'm just a little concerned about that so i will get those checked out but in terms of like quality of life and how i am just um emotionally and spiritually like i can't I can't ask for more. And, and again, I go back to you know, my first journey in 2017 that has helped um, kind of uh, pave the way for, for everything else. Mm-hmm.